Um, with that, we're going to be heading into our series, and we're kind of making a shift. We are talking about Kingdom Vision, which is our year theme for this year. Um, and the past few weeks, we've been talking about actually what the kingdom looks like. What does it look like to say the kingdom of God? And that helps us to understand what the vision looks like. Our next kind of sub-series to Kingdom Vision is actually trying to figure out uh, what it means to kind of see or what it looks like. So we will begin with this sort of chart. Um, and I have you guys look at this. So if you could uh, take off your glasses and read the top line for me, that would be great. Um, no, this, can you guys see what this is really trying to say? By the way, learning is, oh, fine, smart kids. No, that's good. Um, what's funny is last year we had a bunch of um, eye, eye doctor, eye people, optom, optom people. They're all gone now, and so they missed out of the joy of seeing this beautiful eye chart, which we'll send to them and make them miss our church. But our new sub-series is really trying to say, um, God, can you teach us how to see the world that you see it? Um, can you teach us how to see with your eyes? Um, our problem is we are very used to seeing things with our own kind of uh, tainted kind of vision or the way we look at the world is in a certain kind of uh, cultural bias or kind of uh, way of seeing the world that is not the same the way that Jesus kind of sees the world. And what we need to ask is, God, will you teach us how to see? Will you teach us how to um, see the world the way that you do. And is really starting with this question, how does Jesus see the world? What's the way that he looks at the way things are going on in this world? And the way we're going to look at this, try to understand this, is by looking at uh, Luke chapter 4, uh, the temptation of Christ. Now, the reason we're looking at the temptation of Christ is because, actually, in our daily lives, we undergo temptation. There are things in this world that try to lure us into different directions. And that kind of perspective... That's actually how we view the world. The world tells us something, we hear it, we respond to it, we want it, we yearn for it. This is actually the very nature of advertising. Now, I don't know if you guys know, but I used to work in advertising. So when I was in university, I worked for my university, uh, UCLA, in the advertising department. And what I would do is I would make uh, advertisements for newspapers, the daily newspaper. I would make banners for uh, the shop uh, and things to sell. We would come up with logos for shops. Um, I made the logo for the lecture notes. Um, that's what I was famous for. I also made a cup design for one of the local uh, coffee shops. And uh, that's kind of what I did for a living. And uh, while I was doing that, I learned a lot about what kind of techniques we use to try to trick people into buying certain things, like how you put certain words big and bold so that they will be drawn into it, what kind of colors draw people into sort of things, and how you try to make things look like this is something that you want. Uh, especially with merchandising, there's always sort of things that we knew people like to buy, point of sale, things like when you go to the supermarket, all the candy bars are just by the till, and they're always like two for one because then they'll sell you two, and uh, then you'll spend money because it's just like a little bit. So very easy kind of things to be. All of this, all of these kind of things, they're there to tempt you, to draw you into something that maybe you don't need, that's something maybe you don't even want, but it'll lure you into it. The way our world works, the way capitalism works, is through this luring in the world. Now, the question is, this kind of luring is that, but there's so many other aspects to it, like um, you'll be happy if you get married, or you'll be happy if you'll be a doctor, or you'll be happy if you live in this country, or you'll uh, enjoy life if you do this. It, there are all these things which the world tells us will satisfy you or complete you, or make things right. 
But then when we look at Jesus, he sees the world, and he sees the way the world speaks to us in a very different way. For us, it's important for us to understand, okay, if that's the case, God, how can we see the world the way that you do? Now, now the real paradigm shift here is this. Maybe we've been looking at this world completely wrong. Like we've been thinking that somehow we will be satisfied through these things. I think that Jesus is saying that there's a very different way to look at the world. There's a very different way to engage with the world. And in doing so, in the pursuit of Jesus, in the trusting of him, in the learning and seeing the way he did it, our lives will be significantly different. But we need to make sure we say, okay then, Jesus, you teach me. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, and we're going to kind of uh, unpack that and see what it sort of says. Um, and actually, the temptation in Luke chapter 4, it starts with this uh, passage. It says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. Now, there's two things here just to start off with. Jesus, uh, at the end of this uh, kind of journey he was on, the Holy Spirit leads him to this place where he is about to be tempted for 40 days. Now, in the Bible, they just list three temptations. We find out later these three represent uh, very big things about the world. But during that time, he was tempted by a lot of other things. It was a whole period of 40 days of being tempted while he was fasting. And yet Jesus withstood all of them. The first thing that we start off with is that we have to understand Jesus was able to do this because of his ability to hear, listen, and obey the Holy Spirit. If we are to overcome temptation, the beginning point is by saying, okay, Holy Spirit, let me hear you, let me obey you, and let me follow you. You can't just do it by yourself or by your own power, by your own willpower, by some app that reminds you to not do certain things. Those might help you change habits, but for have the transformation of your heart, you have to say, Holy Spirit, convict me and transform my heart so that I no longer yearn for the same things that this world tries to teach me. Now, with that, we're going to break that part down. The first temptation is actually the temptation of the flesh. And after it says, at the end of those days, uh, Jesus was hungry, it says, the, the devil said to him, Jesus, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, this dialogue is a very normal kind of, like, if I was fasting for 40 days, okay, if I fast for one day, by the end of the day, I'm hungry. Um, uh, I think the joke is, uh, if I haven't eaten the whole day, and I'm cooking for my kids, and I have to pick them up, whatever they say to me, I'm, I'm already angry at them, right? Because I'm hungry, and I treat them in that word that they call hangry, hungry and angry combined. And I will snap at them, I'll be more short with them, and I'll be like, just go away from me now, don't bother me until it'll be dinner's ready when it's ready. And then as soon as they finish, start eating, I'm already like, desperate to eat and just desperate for them to just be quiet so I can just wolf down my food. Now, here, Satan at the end of 40 days is like, hey, Jesus, I know you're hungry. I know you must be so hungry right now. You must really want to eat something. I bet you could just tell this rock to become bread, and it would become bread, and then you can eat it. Mmm, bread, right? Like, it's this sort of um, really trying to yearn to your flesh, to your appetites, to your desires. And Jesus' response is, well, you know what? Actually, uh, man doesn't live by bread alone. Well, I, 
we make fun of this because Jesus gives that kind of quote, like it's a very Christian quote, partially because he is the founder of Christian faith, right? So he says, man does not live by bread alone. But what does that actually mean? To break that down, it would be this. What we demand for our physical bodies is not more important than what we need for our spiritual life. What we demand for our physical bodies is not more important than what we need for our spiritual life. Now, this is important because the way we look at things sometimes, we feel like when we demand something, it's like we need it. But demanding something doesn't always mean you need it. It just means you're shouting loudly because you want something so desperately. And we demand so many things for our physical sustenance that we think is the most important thing in our life. But when Jesus responds, man does not live by bread alone, he's saying, yeah, it's important to have bread. Okay, you need to have physical sustenance. But he says when it's not by bread alone, he's saying there is something more important than just your physical sustenance. What we need is something for our souls, for our spiritual life. Like, have you ever thought about what it means to cultivate your soul, your inner life, your spiritual life? So... For many years, I didn't cook, and uh, uh, more recently, I've started to learn how to cook. And so you may have noticed, if you follow my Instagram, that there I have, I have things that I've made and I've cooked there, um, which is funny because my sisters still laugh at me because they can't believe I cook um, because I never cooked at all growing up uh, or washed the dishes or cleaned the house, to which my, my wife is shocked at. Um, but because my children were born and my wife was busy with work, I discovered that if I did not learn to cook, we would all just be hungry all the time. So I said, okay, I better start learning to cook. I better learn how to enjoy this. And I taught myself how to cook. And I discovered one of the things about cooking is you can spend so much time looking for recipes, going to the supermarket, picking things to eat, um, deciding what to do. I can put something in the oven to slow cook it for four hours so they can come out and then shred the meat. Like there's so many processes that go in. And I'll put all this effort into it just for this one meal that the kids will eat in about 20 seconds. And they'll be all gone. And I'll be like, oh, well, I just spent four hours making this. And you just ate it. But at least you said thank you. Now, now the point about this is that we care so much about what kind of food we eat. Like, I know we do because we're, we love food. We will go to a good restaurant and we'll say, we don't like this restaurant, but we like this restaurant. And you will eat that food. But your soul, like your spiritual life, like your soul, I don't think you guys care that much about it, right? Like, I don't, I, I mean, is there really that same sort of sense of like, gosh, I really need something that's really going to nourish my soul. I don't know about you, but I don't go to a website and look for a great recipe that somehow is going to nurture my soul in some way. I just think to myself, well, I prayed today for the food. So I guess that counts, right? Is that nurturing for myself? In other words, for many of us, we are actually starving our spiritual life. And then we find ourselves out of energy. We find ourselves frustrated. We find ourselves angry. We find that things in our life are falling apart. And we wonder why. It's like you're spiritually hangry, but you refuse to admit that you need spiritual food. When Jesus is responding to, to, to Satan, and Satan's trying to say, look, you need this physical food. Jesus is saying, yeah, I do need physical food. But I can survive this fasting. I can survive this part because I have something that nourishes me beyond that. Now, if you... If you know God, if you believe in him, you'll say, well, actually, that same sort of nourishment, that's what I need for my soul. You know, you know, reading the Bible, like praying, praying with one another, seeking God, 
talking to him, learning what it means to actually communicate with him, what it means to pray for him, what it means that he's our heavenly father. All these things are ways that your soul gets nourished. Your love, your acceptance, your belonging, your meaning, that all comes from that spiritual nourishment for your soul. This passage Actually, when he's saying this, when Jesus responds, he says, man should not live on bread alone. He's quoting Deuteronomy 8.3. Deuteronomy 8.3 actually says this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. Now, Deuteronomy, if you don't know, is Deuteronomy is almost like uh, Moses' last uh, last words. Like, he writes the whole book trying to say, okay, this is everything that we've been through and everything I know, and I want to make sure you guys all have this down. And he's remembering being in the wilderness. And he's saying, look, one of the things that happened in the wilderness, remember when God put you there? It was there because you needed to learn what it meant to be humble, to what it meant to actually depend on God, to not be self-sufficient. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Like, think about that. Jesus quoting, man shall not live on bread alone. And he's trying to make them remember, he's, he's reminding himself and also saying to the devil, like, this is like what happened back then. If we know that our souls need to be nourished, it begins by saying, you know what? The only one who can nourish our soul is God. To live on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You understand. If you understand that, you realize, oh, you can get manna from heaven. You can get nourishment for the part of your life that you didn't realize was starving. See, actually, food is amazing. Like, there's so many different types of food out there. Like, it's really, really wonderful. Um, you can have Korean food. You can have Japanese food. You can have sushi. You can have ramen. Like, if you pause for a second and think, wow, if I go to a buffet and there's so many different types of food there, and each of those foods may provide some nourishment or some joy to my life, God, God is far more creative and delightful and beautiful than any chef here on earth. Which means that even a spiritual buffet, like you think the, bo- the Bible may be boring, it is, is not actually. The kind of types of life that you can get out of God's word, out of fellowship, out of community, out of the church, is more delightful, more varied, and more substantial than anything earthly. It's a wonderful realization when you realize there is no end to the depth of the complexity and beauty of God's word. If you think to yourself, though, oh, I've already read that part of the Bible. I already know it. Oh, I went to Sunday school. I heard that story. Then you're already like, well, uh, I've had sushi at Wasabi. There's no other sushi in the world to have. Like, that's already the top of the line, right? You don't realize, actually, there is so much good food. I've had Uncle Ben's rice. That's it, right? Like, that's the best rice can be, right? Like, you just don't know. And God is saying, "Uh, you, you have no idea how wonderful God is. But if you humble yourself and you say, well, you know what, actually, God, when I come and read your word, I'm going to say, actually, I don't know it all. Will you delight me? Will you surprise me? Will you show me something beautiful so that I can delight in that and my soul can be nourished? 
I know for a lot of us, actually, we might feel that we feel a bit spiritually dry or we feel a bit uh, weary. And you feel like, oh, it's just a bit boring coming to church. And you're wondering yourself, well, maybe I'll go to another church. Maybe that place has better food, uh, a better spiritual food or a better preacher or fancier uh, worship. Kind of saying, that's cool. You can go to those churches. I think the most important thing is if you come to him humbly, you will get fed. If you come to him eager to learn, he will feed you. And that's what it's about. It's like saying, yes, that's what I want. I don't want to just rely on what I want. But I want to have you, God, give me what I need. This is the dichotomy that we have. So much of our time we spend with what we want as opposed to what actually we need. And actually what God wants to say to us is what you need the most is for you to stop being spiritually hangry and letting him revive and breathe life into your soul. The first way that we look at this temptation is actually the way Jesus looks is actually instead of letting your heart be drawn to your appetites here on earth, whether it is uh, food or whether it is sex or what is assurance from people, all of those things he's saying, look, those kind of fleshly appetites, that's not going to satisfy you. What you need to do is you need to trust and desire sustenance from God. And really saying, actually, Jesus, I, I believe. You, you are the one who is going to provide this for me. It's funny because when you, when you look at what, how Jesus talks about himself, right? I'm the bread of life. I'm the living water. These are all things that give sustenance. And he's not saying, he's, and we all know he's saying that as a metaphor. But those metaphors, those are life-giving metaphors. And he's saying, I'm trying to breathe life into your souls. I'm trying to transform your famished, wasted away souls, right? That's the Ezekiel, these dry bones. I'm going to put flesh on them. I'm going to breathe them to life. That's what he wants for us. Now, us as Christians, we, we, have to, we have to become serious about this. We can't just keep saying, oh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's good. That's a good sermon. That's, that's nice. No, no, you have to say, Holy Spirit, convict me because I need to take responsibility on how I live. I need, I need to change this attitude. Let me hunger and desire for your word. Let me, let me live in this. Let me dwell. And it starts, it starts, it just starts tomorrow morning. When you wake up and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm actually going to read, I'm going to spend time in God's word. You know, five minutes, ten minutes, however long, but saying, yeah, you know what? I need this. I need this. It's saying, okay, I'm going to find some pockets. I'm going to sign up to Right Now Media and then download some of those videos so during my commute I can listen to them. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find something because, God, I know you are limitless in your creativity, in the things that you can provide to nourish my soul. One of the challenges about preaching is, um, so I was talking, I was at COCM headquarters yesterday, and we were talking, and they were asking how often I preach. And I said, you know, pretty much three, three, times a, three times a month, sometimes four, and then uh, preaching the Cantonese services. And I'm like, yeah, so basically over the past, you know, 15 years, I've preached a lot of sermons. And then at one point I was like, what if I run out of things to say? Like, I know my theology and my perspective is going to come across, but what if I run out of things when I'm reading the Bible and I run out of things to say? And I realized... Bert, if you run out of things to say about the Bible, that means you're not reading the Bible with God anymore. You're reading with your own strength because there is no limit. And I will say at one point uh, when Alex Chow was here, my friend, we were blogging uh, thoughts about the same passage that we preached on that Sunday. And I I talked to him. I said, I think I got to stop because I'm afraid I'm going to use my my blogging content and that's going to rob me for the next time I preach. But the more I thought about it, I was like, actually, no. 
there is no end to how much goodness there is from God. Okay, I'm not going to run out of stuff because there's no, there's no end to how much stuff God has. He is unlimited in that. He is really the endless buffet of spiritual uh, satisfaction. Our problem is we're not even eating like a little bit. Now, this is... So while I was in Milton Keynes, my wife took my kids to a buffet. And I always tell my wife, it's a waste of money when you go to a buffet. And she said, wait, I have this great idea. They should make a buffet with only small portions so that only people that don't eat a lot can still try lots of food. And I said, honey, I, don't, I think that's the opposite of a buffet. I think that's exactly what people don't want. But she's like, because I don't eat that much, but I have to pay all this money. And I can only eat a little bit, and then I'm full. It's like a waste of money. This is what our spiritual lives are like. I mean, like, we're paying loads of, like, like, we have a whole life that God has given us, and we're spending it, and we're not eating anything at God's spiritual buffet. We're just like, I, I came here, I just, I've been hanging out on the toilet the whole time. It's been fantastic. So good. So good. And God's like, yeah, you know, like, um, I, I throw out the word feast a lot and banquet and like I'm the bread of life. You know, you eat of me. Oh, actually, you know that communion thing? That's trying to remind you that there's this endlessness to me. Trust and desire sustenance from God. That's, that's what we really got to be going for. Because then you will discover, wow, actually our God is endlessly good, endlessly amazing. The second temptation goes on. It's actually the temptation of the eyes. And what happens is uh, Satan actually takes, um, takes Jesus up uh, to a high place and shows him all the kings of the world. Let me read this out. Uh, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all the authority and splendor has been given to me. And I can give it to you, anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, this is interesting because actually what Satan's trying to do is having him look. And he's saying, look, if you look out there, all of this can be yours. And he's not saying keep all this authority and splendor. Now, what's the authority and splendor? What's that talking about? Authority and splendor is saying, look, all your significance, your identity, the way people look at you, wow, they'll think you're the greatest. They'll think you're awesome if you just worship me. You know, if you give me that same glory, you will receive all the glory. This is pointing out this idea that somehow this world can give us the identity or the security or the glory that we need or that we want. But Jesus' response, which is, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, is saying, no, no, that's not how it works. I know who I am, and who that is is not about myself seeking glory. Our security and identity is not found in what others see in us, but is found in our relationship to God. Again, our security and identity is not found in what others see in us, but is found in our relationship to God. If you know who you are in God, it doesn't matter what other people think. Now, this is hard for us because actually most of us, our identity or security is wrapped up very much in who we are, in what our job is, in our gender, in our friendships, in our relationships. Who am I? Oh, I'm Reverend Berthan of the Birmingham Chinese Evangelical Church, married to the one wife, and the, I have two kids. I'm a father and husband, and hopefully a grandma. Like, that's who I am, right? If that is my identity, I mean, that, that can be taken away. I could stop being a reverend at some point. 
And then we're like, oh, who am I now? I'm the ex-reverend of the Birmingham. You know, like, that's how we sell. Well, I used to be here, but now I'm not. When my wife leaves me, well, I am an ex-married person. You know, like, we don't know who we are without those things. Like, when our children leave home, I'm, I guess I'm a mother or a father still, but I don't know where they are now. I guess I'm just, um, they're there. I'm, a, I'm hopefully a grandparent. But, you know, like, we're trying to think about those things. Or we change jobs, and we're lost in our career. We don't know what we want to do. We don't like the career that we're in. We're like, I don't know. I, I'm this, but I don't like it. And then we find that when we're not getting what we want, or we, we, we wish we were married, but we're not, or we wish we were employed like this, but we're not, or we didn't get the degree that we want, we're like, I, I don't know. And the world keeps telling you, now you get this, you'll be happy. But it's an endless cycle, isn't it? You get a job, you're like, oh, I'm now I'm like the junior graphic designer here, and say, oh, but do you want a promotion? You become the senior junior graphic designer. You're like, oh, I want that. That's going to make me higher up. I'm going to get more pay. Not much more pay, but I'll take it anyways because I'll get the title. Maybe then after that, I can be the senior manager of the junior graphic designer. You're like, you just keep chasing that next thing. And you think you're getting more significant. You think you're becoming greater identity, but you're not. You're not really going anywhere. The world is telling you, no, you are. You've done lots, but actually, you've not really been anywhere. See, what, what, what Jesus responds, like, this is really brilliant, right? Because he says, look, actually, it's written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Like, the offer here is, the offer here is you can have all the splendor and authority. Like, everyone will look at you as the king of kings. Of course, he is already the king of kings. You just have to give me glory. And Jesus' response is, no, 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 no. Who I am, it's all about giving glory to God. To worship God is the most important. Giving glory to God, that is, that is who I am, and I serve him only. This is Jesus saying this, right? Like, I am God Almighty, but I know that actually the greatest thing is to give glory to God. That is the most important thing, and to serve him only. See, the world wants us to find our own glory. They're like, you'll be happy if you glorify yourself. If you make a name for yourself, then you'll have meaning. You'll have importance. But Jesus says, give glory to God and serve him. If you have that perspective, then, then your interactions are completely different. Now, let's, like, let's rewind this. So let's say I am a graphic designer. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah my, my, my job is to make things look good. You know, like I want to do that. Now, actually, but I, I back it up. That's not who I am. Who I am is someone who gives glory to God. Everything I do is for glory to God. It does mean at that point, it means like, oh, then I want to do this excellently because this is my expression of worship to God. If I'm a doctor, I want to do it excellently because I know that's my expression to God. I want to do it right. I want to be faithful in what I do. Even as a pastor, what I'm doing is I want to be faithful in what I do. I want to, I want to represent God in this. In, in every job that you have, you realize that job does not define me but what defines me is that everything I do and who I am is for God. That transformation means actually as a father, as a mother, as a daughter, as a son, all of these things say, well, you know what? My, my first thing is I want to give glory to God. So how can I glorify God in my life? Well, I got to honor my parents or I have to not exasperate my children. I can be a blessing to these people. 
And I want to serve God in that way. I want to honor him in that way. You begin to understand, yeah, actually, no matter what happens in this life, no matter what degree I get, no matter how the winds blow and all these things are taken away, it doesn't matter because I still always know who I am. And that is in perspective to God. Why is this also important? Because actually God is the unchanging one. Right? He's, he's the only one that has a fixed point. Like He is not blown about by the wind. You know, he's not uh, affected by the stock market. So when he's your fixed point, you're like, well, actually, because he, he is the one that I revolve my life around, I can do anything. I can be anyone because who I am is already clear. I just have to live out that expression of following Christ in whatever role that I am in. The third temptation is actually the temptation of the self. Now, the, the third temptation goes like this, and it's, uh, the devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. He said, you know, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, now, there's so many interesting things about this passage, so many interesting things. But the first kind of take-home point is this. You know, like this response, Satan is trying to lure Jesus. He's trying to tempt him to say, look, it's about yourself. You know, it's about who you are, the temptation of the self. And Jesus' response is, don't put God to the test. In other words, in our life, we obey God, not the other way around. We obey God, not the other way. We, it, God is not um, deliveroo, where we suddenly just call him, but hey, God, hey, oh, yeah, um, so uh, it's been a rough day, so if you could just drop this off to me, I'd feel a lot better. You know, like, he is not at our beck and whim. He is not someone that we are summoning. Actually, in our life, we obey God. He is God Almighty. He's the creator of the universe. He is the mastermind of all things. He's the one who knows you inside and out. He knows what you've been up to. He knows your thoughts. He knows your heart's desires. And here we are. We think, well, you know, if God loves us so much, he would do this for me. And because he hasn't done that for me, I don't know. I'm a little bit upset at him. So maybe I'll just go do it myself. I'll just get it my own way. And God is actually saying, you know, but if you really obey me, if you really follow me, if you really trust and desire me, that's, like, that's the main thing. That is who you are. It's not the other way around. This passage, this passage is interesting because Satan actually quotes Scripture to Jesus. Try, try to confuse him, right? Psalm 91, 11 and 12 is what he's quoting. And it says, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And he's saying, look, Jesus, you know, you trust God, right? You believe him. You know he'll protect you. You know, show it. If God really loves you, this won't happen, right? And we've all heard that too in our own lives, right? Oh, if God really loved you, he wouldn't let you suffer. You know, oh, you, you just got to just, just do it. You know, God will protect you. What's funny is this psalm. You know, what the, the next line after this psalm is, is this. Let me read this out. So after it says, so they will not strike your foot against a stone, the next line says, you will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. I don't know if Satan knows this, but actually that next line is talking about him. Like, Jesus is going to trample on Satan. Like, that's the end of him. But the other thing that's really ironic about this passage 
Is that saying here, like, oh, God will save you. God will protect you no matter what. But Jesus' time here on earth, it was to die. It was the opposite of that. It was not to be saved. It was not so that he could be crucified on the cross, and then while he's there, he could have cried out any time, actually, God, I don't want to be this, and God could have saved him. But Jesus knew from the very beginning, actually, everything is about obedience to him, is obedience to the will of God. It's not about his own desire or his own saving of himself or his own good interest. See, Jesus' response where he says, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. That's actually a quote from Deuteronomy 6.16. Deuteronomy 6.16 says, do not put the Lord your God to the test as you did at Massa. Now, Massa is a reference to an incident that happened in Exodus where it says, the Lord answered Moses. Go out in front of them. Let me give you some background. So, um, the people were taken out of Egypt. They're all liberated. They're free. They're out there, and they're in the desert. And then while they're in the desert, they're like, oh, we're so thirsty. There's no water. Why did you bring us out here? Moses, you brought us out here to die. This God that we believe in, where is he now? What's he doing? We should go back to Egypt. Everything is better back there. And uh, Moses is like, God, these people, what's the deal with them? Like, they're so annoying. Like, they're complaining all the time. And then this is it with God's response. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Now, first of all, when Jesus is quoting this, do not put your Lord, your God, to the test. He's not like saying this is a test or an exam. What they're saying is this test is like saying we don't trust God. We don't believe that he's actually here. So we want to take things into our own hand and go in our own direction. And Jesus' response is, look, actually, when it says don't put your Lord, your God, to the test, it's saying, actually, I submit and I obey God and I trust him completely. I don't have to see it turn out the way I want to because I trust and I know that our God is faithful. I'm not going to test him by saying, oh, prove yourself to me because I know that he is there and I know he is real. What else is interesting about this passage that he's quoting? Jesus is the rock. He's also the living water. And in this passage that he's quoting, this one here, is where Moses strikes the rock and living water comes out. Jesus, the rock, was struck down, crucified on the cross, so that his living water could be shared with us. He, in this quoting of this, in the quoting of this passage, which Satan is trying to use to say, save yourself, or prove that it's all about yourself, and then you just disregard God. That temptation... If you ask me, that's one of the greatest temptations Jesus had to face. Where he could say, you know what, actually? Humanity is not worth it. Actually, I do not want to obey. I do not want to do the will of God. The God's will is not the same as my will. I do not want to suffer for this sake. I want to just have my own joyful life. Forget these people. That temptation, that's what Jesus is wrestling with. Selfish what we want versus what God wants. For Jesus, it's worse, right? Because he knows he's going to get struck down. He knows he's going to die. He knows his life is a sacrifice. He knows humanity is probably not worth saving. We are selfish. We are proud. And yet Jesus completely submits and completely trusts God and completely trusts this plan 
and submits his will to that. Now, I don't know about you, but in my own life, I know there's so many things I'm selfish about. There are things that I want. And then if I don't get it, I will try to get my own way, do it in my own ability. But we really have to say, God, actually, I want to submit and I want to trust in you. The idea is that we actually have to trust, obey, and submit to God. We can't keep just trying to do it our own way. We really have to believe and obey him. See, trusting God is not just some abstract thing. So I don't know about you, but when you go out to, a, you're in a new city, you want to find some place to eat, what do you normally do? You go on to Yelp, and you try to find the Yelp reviews, and you see whether they're good. You go on to TripAdvisor and say, oh, this restaurant, oh, this restaurant has four stars. It looks pretty good. Oh, look at their menu. I've looked at their menu online. By the way, my wife loves doing this. Uh, she will spend hours looking at menus and deciding what she wants to eat. Uh, and then looking at all these kind of different choices. And they'll look at all these different reviews. So you can look at this place. And oh, look, this Indian place has uh, 106 reviews. And it's like four stars. And the one review sounds like they were just complaining because the food didn't come out fast enough. I think it's pretty good. So you're like, oh, I'm all ready to go here. But what's funny is you trust these 106 people you've never met who just happened to put four stars and may have written something. They could just be Chinese bots out there to uh, try to push up the Asian, the Indian restaurant level. You know, you don't know. Now, let's say you're there and you're looking at this, you're ready to go to the restaurant, and then your friend calls you and says, oh, yeah, I just went to that restaurant last week. It was horrible. And then you're like, what? Oh, but 106 people on TripAdvisor said it was really good. But you, my friend who I eat with regularly and has pretty good taste, says it's bad. Who do you trust? My guess is you'll probably trust your friend, depending on how much good taste they have, right? Unless they're that friend who has really bad taste. But if this friend is the one who knows good food, you'll be like, oh, wait, that person thought it was bad? I'm not going there. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to listen to you, especially if that friend's Asian, right? Like an Indian person, you're like, oh, yeah, you know that place is not good. I'm not going there. So you would trust that person. And by doing so, not only would you trust them, you would obey them. You wouldn't be like, well, no, no, I trust, I trust you and then just go to that restaurant, that's just ridiculous. If you really trust someone, you will obey them because you really believe what they're saying. You'll be like, yeah, no, I trust you. You said that. I will do what you say. God, if you really trust God, if you say you trust God, you will obey him. God's like, yeah, so I don't think premarital sex is a thing you guys should do because I think it, it defiles what, what he desires for marriage. If that's the case, if you would be like, oh, but God, you know, I got needs. You, know, you don't trust God then. You won't obey him. You're just doing what you want. But if you really trust God, you say, okay, yeah, well, I obey you. I, I think you're right. And God's saying, you know what? I don't think you should uh, do everything selfishly for your own gain. What? But God, I got needs. You know, like, it's like the kind of same sort of thing. You're like, you cannot say you trust God, but not obey him. Now, we, we spend way too much time saying that we trust God or singing about how we trust God and then just completely disregarding him in our life. It starts in a very small way. Like, we just don't, we're like, yeah, no, no, I know it's good that we should read the Bible. What, whatever. Not if you, enough you don't really believe that God is there with you during that time. If you're like, oh, I just got to read the Bible like it's a book, then fine. I don't have to trust it. I don't obey it. It's just there. But if this is your living relationship with the Almighty God, who desires to speak into your life to show you how to see the world the way he does, then heck yeah, I better read that Bible. 
for my own life so I can get through the day. You understand? This is, this is what it looks like to follow Jesus. Surprisingly, this passage in John, this sums up the temptation, actually, of, of Christ. When it says, do not love the world or anything in the world, if anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in this world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those are the three temptations. Those are the same three big things that this world tries to lure us with. The same big three things that the gospel writers put in that temptation because they're like, these are the things. You know, that comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is really trying to lure you in, like, this is going to satisfy. You are going to be happy if you have this. Oh, if you see that and you want it, you should take it. Just go ahead and eat as much bread as you want. You won't get fat. You know, like all these things trying to lure you in. But that is not it. The world and the desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. And this is the thing. God is saying, look, Yes, you might have earthly sustenance, but spiritual sustenance, you get that? You will, you will live forever because his stuff, it doesn't pass away. 1 John 5 helps us really unpack that more and what it means for us to live. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God to keep his commands. This is exactly what Jesus was saying each time. What, the, the main takeaway from his three temptations is like, you know what? You got to trust God. You got to obey him. You got to trust him to feed you. You got to trust him for life. You got to obey what he does. You have to see that it is his glory and we just serve him. That's all it is. Trust God and obey his commands. And we only do that if we have this living relationship to know that actually he is the God that I really trust. And his commands are not burdensome. Like, he's not doing this to make your life miserable. He's doing this because, like, the way Jesus sees the world is so different. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. See, Jesus uses the word overcomes. Like, what does that mean if Jesus says he overcomes the world? Well, what we know is that the world is not our friend. You don't overcome your friend. You're like, hey, we're hanging out. You know what? Actually, I'm going to overcome you. And you're like, that's not what you're going to do. Like, shut up. Get down. That's, no, like, in other words, and, and the, Jesus talks about this often, the world is at enmity with us. It is not our friend. Jesus does not see the world as his friend. It is something that needs to be overcome. But actually what we see about Jesus is that Jesus sees the world with redemptive love. Like he really comes, and him giving his life in complete sacrifice is so that the world, and not the stuff of the world, but the people in the world can be redeemed. So that we can be his children. Like the contrast is this, right? The world is saying, get this stuff and you'll be happy, you'll be satisfied. And God is saying, you overcome the world by following Christ, and then you will be my children, and I will be your father. Like, no greater place of security or of identity or of understanding, no greater place of purpose or of meaning can be found. And it, and it, it really becomes this thing where you start saying, well, yeah, that's it, Jesus. That's where, that's where I want to be, where I'm trusting and I'm obeying you and I'm walking in your way. I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm 
I'm tired of doing it the way I've been doing it in my life so far. Like, it's not gotten me to where I think I need to be. But actually, I really need you to satisfy my soul, my inner being, and I will do that by obeying you and trusting in you in this way. See, this picture of redemptive love God desires for us to see and say, you know what, okay, then, if we had to break it down, is that I want to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I want to love my neighbor. But to do that means I got to start obeying you. I can't just say I'm going to do it. I got to obey you. In our church, uh, we are continuing to grow. I know evening service is, is a cozy one. It's a little bit less than us, but this is great. This, this service, this is where we start to say, well, actually, you know, this is where I pray for you, one another. Like we, we, there's, an, there's enough of us in here to know each other. And we say, well, actually, this is the time where let me pray for someone after service or during the worship. Let me lift someone up because we need to grow in depth. We really need to say, God, I, I, I need to grow in my relationship with you. I do not want to starve spiritually. I want to really move forward. Because, Jesus, you see this world with redemptive love, and, and we want to move forward in this direction. When we're hungering for that, we can begin to see this world changed. Our hope is found in Christ and, and nothing else. So when we come and we respond in worship, there's two things. that As we sing and as you come before God, you know, use that time to say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I keep falling for these temptations. But, God, I, I want to commit myself to you tonight, right now. But the second thing I want you to do is if you just, if you want, just find someone and say, oh, let me pray for you. What's going on? You know, I, I, I really want to lift you up. I really want to pray for God's strength and power to be with you this, this week. But that, that is the life of the body of Christ and the redemptive love of Jesus being expressed here in this community. Let's pray. God, let us not just say we trust you or sing that we trust you. But let us actually turn our eyes to you, Jesus, and completely and fully and wholly submit ourselves to you. Lord, let's yearn for our souls to be spiritually fed by you, to turn away from the things that just don't satisfy. But really let our hunger, our spiritual hunger, be nourished by you. Lord Jesus, we thank you because actually the way that you see the world shows us actually that this world is not trying to help us. But instead, Lord, let us see you and have our eyes so fixed on you that it transforms our relationship with this world, our relationship with one another. We thank you, Lord Jesus, because you are our king, you are our savior, you are the prince of peace, and you are at the end the king of kings and lord of lords. So we want to come and we want to worship you now, like really worship you, like fall at your feet, worship you. We want to lift up our brothers and sisters to you in prayer, just minister to one another in that way. We come before you now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's come and worship.